This episode of It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine was made possible by contributions from slaves like you. Spanky very much. Ex-commercial TV PR man, old Etonian and occasional pig fucker David Cameron would like to bomb Syria. Unfortunately, Russia's got there first and America's been doing it for ages. He wants to bomb Syria to stop the flow of refugees fleeing all the bombs. He's also hoping it will stop the increased influence of Islamic extremism. Bombing Syria will of course destroy the one remaining multicultural society in the region, leaving it open to the increased influence of Islamic extremism. To bomb Syria, therefore, is clearly mental. It's the end of the world as we know it. I feel fine. Good morning, slaves, and welcome to another edition of It's the End of the World as We Know It, and I Feel Fine. The show that gets under dictator's skin. Need another car. Afraid this last one ended up in the drink. Look at you. You're a... I'm not puppet. You're a bloody puppet! Every person on earth, whether agree or disagree with President Putin, you should respect him. I got no strings to hold me down, to make me fret, or make me frown. You're a puppet! I'm not puppet. I am host of Stimulator, and this December will mark six years since 26-year-old fruit vendor Mohamed Bouazizi lit himself on fire in the streets of Sidi Bazid to protest harassment from the pigs and the crushing weight of systemic poverty igniting the righteous fucking weight of revolt that came to be known as the Arab Spring. This historic uprising swept like wildfire across the Middle East and North Africa, toppling dictators in Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, and Yemen, catching the United Snakes and its regional allies in the Gulf states off guard and scaring the living shit out of them. Riots will start here. Iraq will be squeezed. Syria, Jordan will fall. Who will stand with the United States? Who will stand with Israel? Tragically, the heady optimism seen on the streets of Tahiri Square has long since been replaced by the jackboot of counter-revolution and the grim fucking realities of terrorism and civil war. In Bahrain, a popular uprising was brutally put down by a Saudi-led invasion. In Egypt, one pro-Western dictator has been replaced by another who has ruthlessly clamped down on protests, jailing thousands of dissidents. Libya and Yemen have both descended into civil wars, each drawing in foreign military intervention. And then there's Syria. Up until now, me and my submedia slaves have avoided putting out an in-depth sedition on Syria, because the situation on the ground is incredibly fucking complicated and, well, frankly, depressing as fuck. But despite being the defining war of our epoch, a horrific fucking slaughter that has killed upwards of half a million people and displaced 12 million more, reduced entire cities to rubble and spawned a massive flood of refugees that in turn has hastened the nationalist-fueled disintegration of the European Union and despite the fact that it has become a central battleground for the competing geopolitical ambitions of so-called great powers and regional states actors alike, the fact is that the Syrian revolution and subsequent civil war is still woefully misunderstood. On the right side of the spectrum, corporate and state-run media have depicted Syria solely as an external threat, a breeding ground for ISIS terrorists who are trying to smuggle their way into Western population centers by pretending to be war-torn refugees. Is the United States opening its doors to potential terrorists? I could never have imagined an Islamic radical sleeper cell becoming president. If they can cross, anybody can cross. And I'm here today to ask you, 
Do you feel safe? If we ain't scared of you. We're not gonna let you guys use your fear to take our rights away. They claim to be in America now. And as soon as you come in our country, we're gonna take your ass out. In other news, Muslims are bad. What more do you need to know about these people? Many Western leftists, on the other hand, have adopted a disgustingly amoral pragmatism that rationalizes their lack of solidarity by pointing to the lack of a sufficiently moderate armed rebel faction to support. Who are the fighters there? Well, it's not just ISIS, but it's al-Nusra as well. It's the Al-Qaeda affiliate. There are said to be moderates there, but, you know, and there probably are, but they're not a... They're a minority force. While others have gone so far as to throw their support behind the psychopathic regime of that ugly teen stash motherfucker himself, Bashar al-Assad. Death to imperialism, victory to Dr. Bashar al-Assad, victory to the Syrian Arab Army, the National Defense Force, the Syrian, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Liwai, Iskenderun, and all, all, and everyone who is fighting within Syria for the Syrian people, this confused and politically bankrupt fucking narrative is particularly popular with tankies, who have a collective hard-on for Vladimir Putin and seemingly base their entire fucking worldview on a fossilized Cold War narrative that supports any state that they deem to be an official enemy of the United Snakes. Tanky leftists believe that Assad has been targeted for regime change by the United Snakes and its allies and that Syria is being protected by its staunchly anti-imperialist homies, Russia and Iran. But putting aside the fact that Russia and Iran are both gangster imperialist states in their own right who oppress the fuck out of their own citizens, there's an even more obvious flaw in this logic. The fact that the United Snakes isn't actually trying to overthrow Assad at all. Hello darkness, my old friend. The real threat to Assad's fascist fucking regime has come from Syrians themselves who after growing sick and motherfucking tired of having their peaceful protest bombed and machine gunned, launched a popular fucking armed uprising, and it's racist as fuck to ignore this fact and to see all Syrian people as either Islamic terrorists or helpless victims only worthy of support once they become refugees. As the presidential elections in the United Snakes draw ever closer, members of the Obama administration are in a rush to add a victory over ISIS to their presidential legacy before the next war criminal in chief gets sworn in in January. To help accomplish this, they've stepped up cooperation with Russia and the two sides have recently agreed to a so-called cessation of hostilities in order to join forces to fight ISIS and Al-Qaeda. But few Pete's following things on the ground actually think this latest diplomatic push is gonna work. There's only one person who can end the civil war in Syria. You would rule in the possibility of using nuclear weapons against ISIS. Well, I'm never gonna rule anything out. Oh, fuck no. Not that fucker. I'm talking about Syria's greasy, sunken-eyed, goose-necked dictator himself, Bashar al-Assad. So with that in mind, I've got a simple plea. <clears throat> Bashar. You've done some pretty fucking heinous shit over the past five years, but there's still time for you to do the right thing. In fact, it's pretty simple. Just fucking kill yourself. You do realize you're not getting out of this shit alive, right? Once Russia and Iran get tired of propping up your corrupt, hollowed out regime and decide to reach some sort of deal to cover their own asses, they're gonna throw you to the fucking sharks. So how do you want to get out? You want to die like Ceausescu, swarmed by a pissed off mob and lynch? Who knows? With all you've done, you probably get the full Mussolini. 
Or maybe, just maybe, you prefer to take the dignified way out, like a fucking <coughs> samurai or or Viking warrior or some shit. Or as dignified as a man, as hideous and awkward as you could possibly hope for. Fuck it. You could shoot yourself out of a fucking cannon into the Mediterranean. That might be fun. And seriously, who's gonna miss you? Aside from these tankies and your ugly fucking cousin Rami. And on the plus side, just think about how much suffering and bloodshed you could avoid, let alone all the rope peeps would have to say by not having to hang you by your freakishly long neck. Anyway, Bashar, just an idea. Balls in your court, you miserable piece of shit. <laughs> ممكن خسر كتير شغلات بس بحس بنفس الوقت النور بحث كتير شغلات كتير شغلات كرامة كرامة رقم صعب حرية جراحة جراحة قلب صعب كتير تحقق شي دون ضحايا وقالة حرب شي دمر حجر شجر ما في جدار إلا انكسر زلني نظام فكان فشر معارضة فشلين من هون ألم منافق من هون حالش داعش من هون بلاد عالم ملعون تارك الشعب يموت وجهزوا له التابوت أنا بحكي باسم الشعب تا زمن السكوت تا زمن ما تعبر عن نفسك إذا الثورة إجت هذا هو وقتك الحرب مش علي هي ثورة شعبك لاجئي الراب صوت الشعب رجع لك هي بلا حرب أهلية هي ثورة شعب طلعت بالأول سلمية هي مالا حرب أهلية هي ثورة شعب طلعت بالأول سلمية On August 25th, Turkey's thin-skinned proto-fascist tyrant Tayyip Erdogan officially joined the geopolitical clusterfuck in Syria when he sent Turkey's armed forces to lead a cross-border incursion ostensibly to fight Daesh, or the so-called Islamic State, but transparently as an effort to halt the brakes on advances by the Syrian Democratic Forces led by the Kurdish People's Protection Unit, or YPG, which has been making territorial gains in the region that Syria's Kurds have rechristened as Rojava. For many outside observers of the Syrian civil war, the Rojava revolution has been a lonely beacon of hope in an otherwise bleak fucking tragedy and anarchists and other revolutionaries around the world have accordingly flocked to the show solidarity with their cause. This has ranged from the establishment of Rojava solidarity chapters in cities and countries across the world, all the way to peeps traveling to join international battalions of volunteer fighters on the front lines, in an act of international solidarity that harkens back to the Spanish Civil War. Over the past several years, the liberated cantons of Rojava have witnessed some of the most inspiring revolutionary transformations in modern history, most notable being its grassroots Tefden system of participatory democracy and the accompanying self-organization and mass empowerment of women. Freedom for Kurdistan starts with freedom for women. When women are free, then Kurdistan will be free. These hard-fought gains have been all the more impressive given the fact that they've taken place while waging an existential war against the genocidal fucking jihadis of Daesh. But while this will no doubt piss a lot of peeps off, Ah boy, here we go! The uncomfortable truth is that many supporters of Rojava have adopted a dogmatic, uncritical approach to the Kurdish struggle in northern Syria, particularly its military aspect, and in the process have ignored or downplayed actions that not only contradict fundamental principles of the Rojava revolution, but also pose serious fucking threats to its future viability and the spread of values within the region. Kurds have a long and tragic history of betrayal and oppression at the hands of the different states and ethnic groups that surround them on all sides. Under the Assad regime, they were officially banned from speaking their own language and were targeted by so-called Arabization politics aimed at controlling natural resources and manipulating ethnic demographics in the region. 
one of the main tenets of Rojava's Tep Dev system, has been an embrace of secular pluralism and cultural and political autonomy for different ethnic groups and religious minorities. At the same time, the Democratic Unity Party, or PYD, the ruling Kurdish political party in Rojava, has pursued a policy of geographically linking the three Kurdish cantons of Afrin, Kobani, and Jazira, which are physically separated from one another by large thwas of land, primarily populated by Arabs. YPG militia from the start of the revolution has been working for its own interests. It created an autonomous area. It never recognized the Syrian revolution, but it used it to create its own state. The efforts to link the cantons militarily has provoked a great deal of inter-ethnic strife in northern Syria. Syria, with YPG forces benefiting from both U.S. and Russian airstrikes, in the latter case leading to ethnic cleansing of rebel-held positions in the province of Aleppo. YPG supporters have tended to justify these actions by claiming that the Arab forces they have been targeting are all head-chopping jihadis, or members of Daesh, or al-Nusra. Hopefully this doesn't become a self-fulfilling prophecy, and the YPG and local militias of the Free Syrian Army are able to come to an understanding and mutual fucking coexistence. This is especially important now that Turkey's military has joined the fray, and Erdogan, drunk on the authoritarian fucking powers he sees in the wake of July's failed coup, has begun further cracking down on Kurds in southeastern Turkey. While it's important that anarchists fully support aspirations of Kurdish autonomy and self-determination, whether in Syria, Turkey, Iraq or Iran, it's also important to support the autonomy of Syrians in other parts of the country who are struggling against a fucked up combination of authoritarian Islamists, the Assad regime, and its Iranian and Russian backers. They are more powerful with weapons, but we are more powerful in our hearts. Many of you have your freedom because of a revolution. The time for our freedom is now. So, in an effort to shed some well-needed light on this other aspect of the Syrian revolution, I recently caught up with Robin Yassin Kassab a Syrian-British journalist and co-author of Burning Country, Syrians in Revolution and War. Hey Robin, how the fuck are you? I'm very well indeed. Back in January, you and your co-author Leila Al-Shami published Burning Country, Syrians in Revolution and War, which is widely regarded as one of the best English language accounts of the Syrian revolution. What inspired you to write this book? Um, I think we wrote the book because we felt that the story of the Syrian revolution and then the, the various counter-revolutions which, which, which came back at it um, wasn't being told properly. Everybody knows about the jihadists and the head choppers and everybody knows about Putin and Turkey and Qatar and Saudi Arabia but nobody seems to know about you know grassroots Syrian workers and farmers and, and students who were going out there and protesting and then who began to pick up weapons when they were, were so oppressed. So we, we, we did it because we wanted to give a voice to those remarkable Syrian revolutionaries which we thought that they were lacking in the English language and in the West. You have been pretty fucking outspoken in your criticisms of the international response to the conflict in Syria and particularly scathing with regards to the posture adopted by Western leftists. What in particular pisses you off about how peeps have approached the situation? And what do you think that this says about the current state of the left more generally? Well, I think it's been really depressing, really tragic that a lot of Syrians expected at the start that they would be getting help from the, or solidarity from the leftists, the so-called anti-imperialists in the West. And very often it was the left, at least the mainstream or dominant left, which misrepresented them and spread lies about them even before the right did. 
So for example, you know, nowadays we have the right wing telling us that all these Syrian refugees, they're all Al-Qaeda, they're all dangerous jihadists, so we shouldn't let any of them in. This notion that every Syrian or every Syrian revolutionary is Al-Qaeda was actually spread by lots of people on the left. I think what the left has done, um, not just in the case of Syria, but in general, tragically, the left has given up on ordinary people. It, it seems to have lost hope that, that people at the grassroots can actually change things. And therefore, it's just um, got itself obsessed with states. It seems to think that being left-wing is about supporting certain states against other states, as if there are, you know, goody states against the baddie state. But that's not classical leftism, it's not Marxism. I mean, Marxism talked about doing a class analysis in which you um, give your support to the working classes in their struggle against the, the ruling classes. And I think that's what leftists should be doing if they want to be in any way relevant to, to real struggles in the world. They should be supporting people within every state who are trying to fight against their oppressors. And the left has failed to do that and instead through this um, very inaccurate state-based analysis they're just making silly assumptions. They seem to think, for example, that this is a regime change plot directed by the United States against a glorious resistance regime in Syria. Um, and, you know, the facts don't bear that out at all. You've stated on several occasions your belief that the Syrian revolution has been the most significant revolution since 1930 Spain. Could you elaborate on this? In the revolution, and then a particularly as it became a war, when the regime was forced to withdraw from certain parts of the, the country, as the regime withdrew, it withdrew the services that it offered, of course. The state collapsed. And what you had then was that in many different parts of the, the country, people started setting up their own self-organized administrations. So they set up local councils, for example. At the moment, there are about 400 local councils um, operating in the liberated areas of Syria. And these are the people who are keeping life together in the liberated areas under the bombs in the most difficult circumstances. They're keeping the electricity going, they're keeping the water supply going, they're um, trying to build makeshift hospitals and underground schools where, where people can be educated despite the, the bombs. Um, this is remarkable, this, this self-organization, this, this local democracy, and nobody notices it, no, but nobody talks about it. It's much easier for us to talk about the Saudis and the Russians and the states than it is to talk about the remarkable things that people are doing. Not just councils, women's centers, free radio stations, free television stations, newspapers, an explosion of popular art. All of this kind of thing is happening in Syria, in the middle of an awful war, in, amid starvation sieges. It's really remarkable and it's inspiring what's happening in Syria, as well as tragic. And it's our loss that we don't pay more attention to. Outside of Rojava, many Western anarchists are unfamiliar with the influential role that anarchists have played in the Syrian revolution. A prime example being Omar Aziz. Can you tell us a little bit more about who he was? and his material and theoretical contributions to the revolutionary process? Yeah, well, Omar Aziz was a remarkable man and a very influential man. He was an anarchist. I mean, he, he self-identified as um, an anarchist. Of course, many of the people who set up the, the self-organized committees and councils that we were talking about do not necessarily use the word anarchist to, to describe themselves. They don't necessarily come from that theoretical tradition. They haven't necessarily read Bakunin and, and so on. Um, but what they're doing is, is anarchist. 
Amaraziz actually identified as an anarchist, and he'd obviously read a lot of anarchism and studied it. He was living outside of Syria. He came back to join the revolution, and then in the eighth month he wrote a paper in which he said, it's not enough to go out and protest. We have to withdraw from the state and, and stop giving our consent, and we have to set up our own alternative bodies and organizations. And he recommended setting up local councils, the local councils I was just talking about. He helped to set up three of the first local councils in the Damascus suburbs, and then he was arrested. Then he died in prison. Some people say he was tortured to death. We don't know. He already had um, weak health when he, he went into prison. He died there a day before his 64th birthday. But after he died, this model that he had helped to build spread like wildfire, particularly in 2012, 2013, as the regime was withdrawing from, from key areas of the country, people were setting up local councils everywhere. It's also important to remember, I mean, in a way that, you know, anarchists in the, in the West can identify with Omar Aziz to an extent, if they've heard of him, because he identified as an anarchist. But then, you know, when we're looking at cultures which we as Westerners don't immediately recognize, Islamic cultures, African cultures, you know, all, cultures all over the world, people there may be using their own vocabulary, their own, their own cultural vocabulary, but they're sometimes arriving at the same conclusions of self-organization and cooperation that anarchists in the West would hope that they arrive to. So that, that's interesting, and I think we need to look out for that in the future. What effects have the revolution and the subsequent civil war had in terms of women's participation in Syrian society? As a result of the, the revolution, um, women have been empowered a great deal. And then as a result of the counter-revolutionary war, um, in many ways, things have gone backwards. In terms of the revolution, I mean, Razan Zaytouni, a woman, um, was the, the founder of the local coordination committees, a grassroots revolutionary unit which was set up at the start and spread all over the country. There was another group of coordination committees set up by Suhera Tassi, another woman. So those two very important key bodies were set up by women. Um, also what you've had during the, the revolution in liberated areas is, is a lot of women's centers have been set up by women themselves. Um, in order to encourage women's participation in the revolution, in society, in the economy, in order to teach skills where necessary, and also as places where they can go and, and talk and express solidarity to each other and, and, and try and find common solutions to their problems. I think that the, the fact of revolutionary work as well has to an extent liberated women. Everything. Um, has been questioned in Syria in the last years, including the relations between men and women, between husbands and wives, between fathers and, and daughters, parents and children. On the other hand, you know, of course, the fact of war um, in many ways has made things terrible for women. I mean, women have been um, subject to a, a mass rape campaign, which the, the regime organized. ISIS also, of course, has raped women and has made, made Yazidi women into sex slaves, all of this kind of barbarism has gone on. The fact of war has, has victimized women in particular, but um, the revolutionary impulses are there and I think they will continue. And I think that women who've had a taste of, of activism and, and freedom, if only for a moment during the revolution, are not going to, to give that up and they're going to pass that on to their daughters. Anything else you want to add? I think that we should really be paying much more attention because, as I said, it's remarkable what Syrians are doing socially, politically, 
and culturally, as well as all of the terrible things, the torture, the jihadism, the, the bombing, the rest of it, there's, there's all of this cultural explosion, the free newspapers, the, the community cooperation that's happening, which we could learn from. This kind of thing doesn't happen very often in history. And certainly people who claim to be revolutionaries, anarchists and leftists, they really should be the first people who are without prejudice, without silly binaries, without worshipping different lines set out by states. They should be attending to what's happening on the ground at the grassroots and showing some solidarity. Thanks, Robin. And that about does it for this edition of It's the End of the World as We Know It, and I feel fine. To listen to the entire interview with Robin for a playlist of the music we used, or to subscribe to our podcast or email list, just visit my fucking website, stimulator.tv. I wanted to send a massive shout out to the folks of newday.host for saving our ass when our web host banned us, essentially leaving Media offline. Check them out at newday.host. Also, big ups to Luis, Antoine, and Micah for giving us tips on how to deal with a hacking crisis this summer. And of course, mega big ups to the slaves who help us keep the lights on. So, big ups to Harjap, Jessica, Jay, Jim, Alexandra, Blade, Carly, Steve, Gavin, Erador, Jan, Jane, Jamie, Purr, Laura, Flynn, Bear, Michael, Gabriel, Brett, Saganites, Juliano, Christopher, Steven, Sebastian, Kobe, Sakura, Aaron, Hanging Around, Hammocks, William, Adam, Bogrestov, Salison, Jordan, Robert, Dan, Michelle, Andrew, Tyler, Aris, Justin, Michael, Joseph, Sawyer, Marisol, Corbin, Martin, Kirk, Elizabeth, Jens, Alisa, Jacob, Justina, Jose, David, Joni, Jeffrey, Christopher, Wolfgang, Andy, Danny, Paul, Gavin, Jeremy, Moresca, Christopher, John, Renzo, Yifan, Sebastian, Ken, Alexandra, Erin, Bogrestov, Max, Skyler, Luigi, Paul, Masiech, Nigel, Henrik, Gregory, Liam, Adrian, Derek, Martin, Margaret, and Meksha, Antojitos. I would also like to welcome the newest members of the Taconspiracy, Anonymous, Alberto, Sam, Leon, Corvo, Tunic, and Talisman. Bolillos. That's all for now. Stay tuned to Subdub Media for more news from the global motherfucking resistance. Hasta la pasta, compañeras.